Hi, this is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast, a podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. I'm a few hours out of Kiev in the Ukraine at the moment at a gathering of Conex partners. David Bruderick from South Africa has been sharing with us. David's a practitioner, a trainer, a coach, and a strategist for church planting movements in Southern Africa and other parts of the world. David unpacks what a movement is and specifically looks at disciple-making movements. So I'm going to be talking about movements in general. Uh, these are some of the... I, I just put these pictures up so you can kind of get a feel because pictures really help you to understand uh, what is taking place. And um, these are DBSs, just like uh, Steve is talking about. These are DBSs taking place uh, all over the place. Uh, this is actually... Um, my house, this is at my house, this is a leadership group doing a DBS. Um, this is out in an area probably about an hour's drive from me, uh, Soshin Gube. Uh, this is a, a training taking place, one of our trainers doing exactly what Steve has been doing with you guys. This is leaders from about 10 African countries uh, getting together, um, receiving training. This is a group of people that have come to Christ through a DBS. And they're probably about, no, I'd say about 35 people in that, that group, in that uh, extended group. And about half of them got baptized uh, at the same time, decided to follow Christ. This is a DBS taking place in Malawi, somewhere in the middle of Malawi. I didn't take it. One of our guys that went out to see the work took that one. Um, this is a training. I have no idea where that is taking place, but that, it's a training of our leaders, so that's, that's a lot of our leaders coming together and um, receiving training. Uh, this is a uh, DBS taking place in Zimbabwe, and right out there in the middle of the sticks, in the middle of nowhere, you'll know that's Africa. They wear suits and <laughs> in the heat. <laughs> they wear suits, so that's just, that's just how it works. This is Cape Town, and this is a gathering of leaders. Norris was there. Yeah, you remember this, Norris? Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is different leaders of movements. This is just the uh, Western Cape, Cape Town. So this is just the one province of South Africa. And this is all the leaders involved in starting movements all over the Western Cape that have come together and uh, wrestle through issues and struggles. These are, this is a training happening for leaders across uh, Africa. Uh, this is actually a training in the Ukraine. I've done several trainings in Ukraine. This is one of them. Uh, they were about... I think there were about 500 young people at that training that we did. So I've done several trainings like that, and typically in a, in a nation, if I'm going into a nation, I'm going to do trainings just like Steve has done, and get people to understand the basics. Those that catch it, I'm going to spend more time with, and typically that can be one out of a thousand to one out of five thousand. I haven't really tried to research that statistic, but it's very few. So, typically I would, I would look for uh, key leaders. And so I'm identified across, uh, in Ukraine and uh, across Russia, some key leaders. And at that point, I'm going to stop doing trainings like Steve is doing. And I'm going to spend my time with those guys, and they're going to do these kind of trainings in the local language, with the local culture injected into the training. And so movements will, will start to roll out. I think across Russia right now, I'm not sure of Ukraine across Russia right now, uh, in the last year and a half, we're counting 450 churches that have started. So, uh, 
Actually, that's quite slow. <laughs> but things do start slow. David, sorry. You yeah. said one in a thousand or one in five thousand. What's that referring to? If we, if we go into a new country and we do a training like Steve has done, uh -huh. just you know, teaching people how to build movements yeah. um, on a cold kind of training like that, there's going to be a very, very small response. So you mean if you train 1,000 people, one person will do it? Or Some will do it, but one person will have the capacity to do it, to push through the obstacles, and to actually make it work in that nation. And that's the person I'm looking for. So it's, a, it's more of a, a national leader. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You'll, you'll get a lot of other people yeah. implementing at some level, but it's not reproducible until you've got a national yeah, leader. So if I'm on an airplane with somebody and I, I'm an introvert, so I wouldn't even do what Steve did, you know, I just mind my own business and book that, head down in the book. Um, but he's older than me and he's managed to overcome his introvert tendencies. Um, but I'm still kind of, you know. So, um, but, but if I'm with individuals or people or with my neighbor or people in my neighborhood, I'm going to do exactly what Steve did with you. Exactly. If I go to another nation, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm not going to go look for an unsafe person um, because for me to sustain what is happening in that country from another country is not, is not feasible. So what I'm typically going to go in and do is do a training like Steve did with many people and I'm looking for a strategic leader that can do what I'm doing in my country in that country and I'll then begin to mentor them. Okay? Does that help? Good. Uh, I've, got, I've got one of the guys that traveled through Russia with me and, 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 and I did some training and then made him do the training and, and he's got stuff going uh, across Ukraine. He's on the way at the moment, uh, about seven hour drive to come and meet me. So I try and spend time when I move around to mentor these guys. This is, this is one of my favorite guys. He's a, he's a Zulu, a thorough Zulu. And uh, DZ, and so part of what we do as well is we have an organisation that uh, you know moves funds, and so so we get behind leaders like this. I, I look at the nation and say, okay, where are the, where is movement breaking out, and who are the leaders responsible for that, and how can I get behind them and serve them and make them more effective? So this is one example. DZ planted a hundred churches on foot. Uh, he would walk uh, one or two days walk by foot to get to a village, start a new church, and then walk by foot back, and then you have to get back to maintain the work. And we looked at that and said, hey, we've got to get behind him. So, you know, part of what we do then is we bought him this vehicle so that he can move around much faster. And um, we're in the process now of, of building it into a business model so he can actually sell goods on the way and s sustain himself with the petrol and, and all that kind of stuff. It's part of what I do. This is a, a new movement that's breaking out in Johannesburg. Um, believe it or not, it doesn't look urban, but it is urban. <laughs> it's in a big garden, and um, that, that's about a year old, um, that, that group. And, uh, this is actually a church. This is a church made up of probably about uh, five DBSs, and everybody in here is responsible for more DBSs that aren't part of this, part of this church. So, how long have you been involved in this? Six years, probably. It depends on what you mean by this. Intentionally involved in PBS. I've been involved in movements for 25 years. 
And I, I started building with the movement philosophy where we are probably about 12 years ago. We went through ups and downs and all that kind of stuff and slowly added things like DBS, like uh, the Discovery Bible Study, you know, DMM. Slowly it evolved. And as it evolved, um, a lot of the people that were with us from the beginning also were mobilized further on. Um, so if I say I'm, I've just been doing this for six years, it's not totally true because six years ago we already had a group of people that were sold on movements. We added methodology to it. That's, I mean, the question is, did you drop lots of people when you shifted to this culture? Yes. Yeah. I, I was... I moved to um, where we are now, Midrand, with a dream of movements, and ended up starting a church, a traditional church, and I'm going to make the story real short, but um, I basically stood the one day in front of a group of people where the church was, I don't know, three years old, about 70 people there, we had musicians and drums and keyboards, and I was preaching and all that kind of stuff, and in a moment... I asked myself, is, is what I'm doing here right now ever going to reach this nation? And I realized it would never. And to make a long story short, the next week we closed that church down, completely shut it down. And uh, radical obedience. And I said, I'm going to do what it takes. And we lost about half the people. Uh, th there's more to it. We walked pastorally with people and we weren't irresponsible, but... Um, essentially, over the next year, we lost about half the people. Over the next year, we lost another, about another half of those people. So about a quarter of those people finally stuck it through with us and became part of the movement. And then new people came in that had the movement philosophy. Does it help? Okay. So, sound easy, but... Was now. Uh, no, it's not. It's very Can painful. Both movement and church together. It's very painful. <laughs> both movement and church together. Like the church you start with, if you can. This is church. <coughs> I, I want you to I want you to notice something because this is what part of the reason that I'm showing you the pictures, because pe people don't get a picture of what this looks like. Um, how many buildings do you see? No. How many How many preachers do you see? What, what do you see? People yeah. and communities. That's what you see, isn't it? In all these pictures, that's what you see. Well, that is church. That is church. My church is a group of people that meets at my home uh, with my family. And, and we get together and we do DBS and we do all kinds of other things. And we reach out to the poor and the sick and the needy. And we reach out to the lost and... We live as a community of people, and that is, that is my church. That's our church. Um, my church is also um, on a Sunday night when I sit and do DBS with my own children. And uh, my two children are teenagers, and all the challenges that come with that. But we sit on a Sunday night when I'm there, and we do a DBS together, and we talk through Scripture, and we pray together. That's my church. My church meets on a Tuesday night when a, a group of people that are leaders, catalysts for movement, get together and pray and plan tactically for how we're going to roll out a movement inside of our region. My church is my organization and the people around that. The, the lady that helps me with administration, the, the chairman of the board, uh, the board, 
a couple of people around that. And when we get together and we actually do board stuff, we do church as well. My church is people. People say, where do you go to church? Everywhere that those people are. And I, I do have a regular group of people that I'm accountable for. So I want you to, I want you to see the pictures of, of what a movement looks like and um, kind of catch the heart of that. It, a, a movement is a, a movement of people. It's a people on people. People on people. And the simpler we can make that and the easier we can make that like Steve has been doing. And I, I have to confess, I'm really bad at storytelling. I just confession out there. I have a three-second memory, and uh, if I don't have a picture in front of me, I forget it. <laughs> Ask my wife. She gives me a shopping list with three things, and by the time I'm out the door, I've forgotten all three. <laughs> she has to put the list on my iPhone or give me a picture. I just, that's just, that's just me. Yeah, can and, she talk to my wife? <laughs> <laughs> and so we're gonna we're gonna get to that we're gonna get to that through this presentation that that in different cultures and different settings there are various methodologies that use exactly the same values and it's about values. I know that with Nadim I asked some questions with Steve and, and, and the questions were about methodology and, and Steve's response was right. He was driving back to the values. Uh, what are the values that drive the methodology? Methods can change, values stay the same. And so once you understand the, the value of the values entrenched in DBS uh, around the questions that he asked here, um, you can start to talk about culturally appropriate models inside of your society. But I advise you don't fiddle with it until you've really done it a couple of rounds, like Steve has been training. So <clears throat> what I was asked to do was to talk about what I see in movements around the world, and that's quite a vague assignment. And as I was praying, um, we, we have training that we do for strategic leaders. With CRM, I know some of you have been to some of the trainings that we've done. And uh, so I didn't want to repeat that and repeat a lot of what we have done. And so I'm going to jump to a strategic level in, in what I'm going to talk to you about. And forgive me in that if that creates confusion for some of you, but I think some of you are going to find some benefit. Uh, out of what I'm going to share with you. And I'm, I'm going to talk about, and we're going to workshop this to, to some degree, uh, the climate for movements. As, as I look at where movement has broken out around the world and where movement has not broken out around the world, I'm increasingly aware that there is a climate that is conducive to movement and there's a climate that is resistant to movement. And at a strategic level, it's important for us to understand that. Uh, as, I, as I talk to strategic leaders, it helps us to clarify expectations. I think movements are like the incarnation. They're a mystery. We can understand them to some degree, but some degree we can't. Movements are fully God. They're all about God and what, what God is doing. There's nothing we can do to add to movements that are fully God. And yet at the same time, movements are fully us. <laughs> And everything about what we do. And, and somehow those two, those two come together to, to create movements. And I've seen teams work in one context and do exactly the same as what teams do in another context. And movements will break out in that context and they'll be much slower in that context. 
I try and picture a little bit like uh, a guy going sailing. And he steps outside and he looks at the weather. Now, if he wants to get from A to B in a certain period of time, certain length of time, is that dependent on the weather? Or is it dependent on his sailing skill? Both. <coughs> Both. A skilled sailor can get there in bad weather. He can get there in storms. He can get there in, you know, with no wind. He can still get there. But it's, it's so much easier if, if the, the climate is right, isn't it? If the wind is just right, blowing at just the right speed in just the right direction, it is so much easier. And so we, we can begin to talk about the, the methodologies. This is what you do to build movements, especially disciple-making movements. You push these buttons, pull these strings, and this is what you do. You run a DBS, you go to step one, step two, step three. And, and, and these skills are extremely important. But they are not the only factor that determine how fast you will get from A to B. A skilled sailor also stands and he looks at the climate. He looks at the weather. He understands what is happening around him. Like the sons of Issachar, they look out and they understand the times and what Israel should do. And, and this, is a, this is a strategic function. So when I start to mobilize teams to, to begin to start discovery Bible studies and begin to start churches and make disciples, I do not go into this. It will confuse them no end. When I start with new people training them, I do exactly what Steve has done. There's nothing that he said that I disagree with, that everything that he said is what we would do. He may say it in a different way, and all of our trainers express it in different ways, but it's the same values. But when I begin to train strategically, it is and some of you are going to be operating at a strategic level probably faster than, than, than not. When I begin to train strategically with leaders, I've got, a, I've got another set of training because the guy's got to stand out and they've got to understand certain things that, that those that are first starting off do not understand. When we talk about movements, we talk about operating at three levels. We talk about an operational function and I have training inside of that that I, I've trained teams how to go out, find people of peace, start discovery Bible studies, and these are skills, just like sailing, if you do not know them, you will never have movement. And if you know them intellectually and you don't know them in practice, you will never have movement. You have to master them, master them, master them. There's no shortcut. But as teams begin to go out and do that, they're going to run into problems. They're going to run into struggles. We started saying to people, you know, go find the person of peace who will open you to family. And then we talk to people in cities and they say there are no families. So we, we, we begin to hit these obstacles in different cultures. And, and then we've got to come back, and this is a tactical function, and we do tactical training. And we begin to bring teams together and say, okay, how can you stick to the values? But the methodology may have to adjust to the culture that you're in. It may be oral, it may be written, it may be read. It, 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 the, the methodologies will change, but the values will stay the same. As, as we get the tactical function right, we, we, can, we can look up and have a, a bigger view 
And you cannot have that view without movements. Remember those pictures that I saw? I, I've got this view because I've got thousands of people doing these things. So I'm, I'm not going to give you training here. I'm just going to describe a little bit of what, what we do. And tomorrow, um, I was asked to talk about how do we sustain movements. And so tomorrow, I'm going to talk about what does David do? What, what do I do? What do I, what do I currently do? And it's not training, it's to try and describe to you that, that all of these functions are eventually necessary for movement to happen. It starts here, this evolves, and it slowly that evolves. And there are very, 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 very few people in the movement that are fulfilling that function. And there's nothing important about that function, and there's nothing hierarchical about this whatsoever. These aren't levels to be achieved, these are functions and giftings. That's what they are. So I know very apostolic people that travel the world and are highly respected leaders, incredibly respected leaders, and influences of thousands, and they operate at this level here. So it's not a hierarchy, this is about function, and it is about calling. Any questions before we go any further? I'm going to stop every now and then, allow some questions, just pause, I'm going to do some exercises. Because I don't want to just present. Anyone got a burning question? So when we started to understand the climate of movements, that this is a strategic function, and this is what I'm going to talk about here. And so, forgive me, I may lose half the room, but I think it may be very relevant to the other half of the room as we begin to talk. I've got two goals as, I, as I'm just sharing with you now. The first goal is to understand the climatic indicators that reveal an atmosphere right for movement to take place. Understand them, you know. If I, and, and this is what just my observation, my humble observation. This sounds fancy, but, but in reality, this is just David and what he's observed. <laughs> and what he's learned through reading history of movements, by traveling the world, by looking at where movements are broken out. My second goal... Oh, and by the way, I'll give you this PowerPoint, so don't worry about writing everything down, okay? My second goal is to understand how we can cooperate with what God is doing in a nation or in a city. You cannot cause movements to happen. You can do the right things and you should do the right things, but you cannot cause movements to happen. There is no magic button or series of buttons that you can push mechanically to make movements happen. They're a God thing. And, and strategic leaders that that look at movements that take nations are, are people that are able to step back and say, what is God doing in my nation? And how can I cooperate with what God is doing? So I don't wake up in the morning and have a plan. I wake up in the morning and I look out the window and I say, what is God doing? And how can I follow what He's doing? And it, it keeps you humble. Because there's absolutely nothing that I can claim that I, that I do out of any kind of training or intelligence or, you know, I, I'm not some amazing guy. I basically wake up in the morning and say, okay, God, what's next? What are you doing? That's a skill that you have to train tactical leaders in. They wake up in the morning and they say, with every person I'm going to talk to, I'm going to try to figure out what God is doing. Every conversation I have, what is God doing? And I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to go with what God is doing. So we want to be like the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times, 
with a knowledge of what Israel had to do. That's going to be what we're going to talk about here. So there's different types of movements, and I'm going to be as general as possible, not specific to disciple-making movements, although we are going to be talking about disciple-making movements. But, but as we talk about the climate for movements, the climate for movements is very similar no matter what kind of movement breaks out. You get lots of different kinds of movements. And Steve is the movement expert, and he'll describe them all. But you get social movements. You get, um, you know, uh, the Arab Spring was a movement. <laughs> and, you know, um, you, you get all kinds of movements. You get resistance movements, civil resistance movements. You get disciple-making movements, church planting movements. You get different kinds of movements. We want to look at what is the climate that, that is most conducive for a movement to break out and how can we get there. So forgive me, I'm going to put a lot of writing up here in the initial stages and then we'll get less writing up and do more exercises. Okay? What is a movement? If I, if I take disciple making out of it and I just try and describe what a movement is, this is David's most simplistic de- definition. What I, can, what I can kind of come up with, what, what is a movement? A movement is a rapidly expanding and growing body of people all bound together by a singular cause. You can add definitions to that. You can change that. You can... I don't mind. That's just my attempt to try and describe what a movement is. (laughs) If I had to contrast movements with with a lot of what is happening in, in organizational thinking, then I'd say a movement tends to Movements tend to be powerful forces for change. Organizations don't like change. Organizations resist change. Movements tend to be powerful forces for change because they're committed to a cause. Contain people with a fiery passion for this cause and multiply exponentially faster than the ability of any organizational structure to contain them. So when I look at anything and the, and, and the structure of the organization can contain what is happening, it is not a movement. It has to break outside that, that, that organization and be bigger than that organization for, to be called movement. Disciple-making movement focuses on the cause of making disciple-makers who reproduce themselves into others through multiple generations. Just getting some definitions out of them. What what we're going to be talking about is typically something that I would do with a strategic leader over about seven full days. And so I've got a hard time trying to break these slides down to simple, let's do this quickly, (laughs) in an hour and a half. Okay. Um, I, I don't like just presenting. I like workshops because we walk away saying, okay, I understand it, but not only do I understand it, I've personalized it, and I know what to do when I go away. So we're going to try and do a little bit of that, but understand we're going to rush quite fast because this is seven days that we, that we would spend with a team doing this. So let's look at the, what are the climatic indicators that show us that a place is ripe for movement and how can we cooperate with God to see that happen? Understand again, I'm not saying that where this is not present, we can't have movements. What I'm saying is, where all of this is present, you're more likely to see rapid movement. Okay? 
seven, seven indicators that movement can break out in an area. Spiritual pregnancy, and you see all of these in the story of Jesus. All of them. The spiritual pregnancy. Bible says, uh, Galatians 4, verse 4, 7, when the fullness of time had come, God sent for His Son. So there was a fullness of time, and there was a huge pregnant period. There was a huge build-up to that point where the time was right. And I'm going to describe that a little bit more, and, and if we get the chance, I'll describe that inside of our own story and, and what God did in our story. And a lot of people give up. They get frustrated in that time. Steve was talking earlier on, and he said, you know, we've come to a place that's really great. We're starting to see the, the signs of movement. But it's taken three years. Well, it didn't. It probably took seven years before that. There was a, a spiritual pregnancy that was birthing something before you even started. And that, that's true in every single movement around the world. There's a bullet of tension. Can we... Can we sorry, yeah. Spiritual pregnancy. Can we, could it be... Positive and negative? Yeah, well, we're going to go into each one of these, so okay. let's, let's deal with that. There's a bullet of tension, okay? And so, how do you find that in the story of Jesus? Well, you, you find this Jewish nation, the Israelites, oppressed by the Romans and expecting a Messiah to come and free them. And there's a tension between the reality of what is and the hope and the dream of what could be or should be. There's that tension. Where you find that tension you find the atmosphere for movement. So one of the things we want to do is we want to look at our own culture and understand where is that tension taking place and, and what is that tension. Okay, And it's going to help us determine a lot of what we, what we do here at a strategic level. There's a compelling narrative. Jesus gets up and says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He's anointed me to pro proclaim good news to the poor. Now if you're poor, is that compelling? <laughs> he gets up and He uses... Intentional political language. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's talking to people that understand that politically and he knows it. So he uses a narrative that speaks straight into the tension of the time. And, and this is very important for us in movements. I'll describe as we go through it how we did that in South Africa. And, and we do that across Southern Africa. There's a, there's a viral channel. In other words, it's not good enough just to have a good message. There's got to be a way for that message to spread. In, in the first century, in many contexts of the word, that is verbal. In, in other contexts of the world, it's not verbal. So we need to be able to say in our culture, how can a message spread virally? And how does news spread? How does good news, bad news, how does it spread? Understanding that helps us to build movement. There's a point of entry. Jesus says, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And we're going we're gonna to look at um, points of entry and how Jesus creates those. This is how you can join the movement. This is how you can come in. And one of the mistakes a lot of guys that build movements make is they don't have a clear point of entry. Or the point of entry is a membership form rather than what it should be. So we're going to look at that. There's a, a common method. And Steve spent a lot of time this morning looking through methodology. A, a common method. And one of the things that I've, I've noticed early on is that as this, this ideology of movement started spreading around the world and the church world, a lot of methodologies came out. And a lot of people grabbed all of them and kind of threw it at the people and said, you know, you pick one, you choose one. And then they never got movement. All movements have a clear, common methodology. This is how we do it. 
This is how we make disciples. This is how we do what we do. And, and that is extremely important. And there's a great sacrifice. So let's, let's look at each one of those. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause and let you have a conversation for just five minutes around each one of these. Because I, I, I want us to make this personal. And then what's going to happen is I'm going to somehow, I don't know how, give you the PowerPoint. And you can take the whole exercise and you're going to do it all on your own. And you can spend hours over it and do whatever you want to with it. Okay? Everybody okay? Yeah. Good? With me? Good. With you. Excellent. Spiritual pregnancy. So, if you track the story of Jesus, it doesn't start with Jesus calling his disciples, does it? The Bible goes to incredible length. I mean, look at the thickness of your Bible and turn to where he calls his disciples and look at how far into the Bible you are. It builds an incredible narrative, an incredible uh, uh, pregnant period that talks about the coming Messiah over and over and over and over and over again to a point, a time that was the fullness of time when people were expecting something to happen. And, and then Jesus arrives on the scene. And we see this through various things. The biblical prophecies of the coming Messiah, there's uh, at least 44, if not more, prophecies, clear prophecies of the coming Messiah. We, we see that in the story of the shepherds and the wise men. Jesus is born and, you know, there's angels and they follow the star and there's, there's, all these things are happening long before a movement is born. Long before a movement is born. There's the story that, that God is doing something. God is preparing something. And, and one of the things I want to do in a, in a nation or in an area is I want to find out what is God doing? What, what, is, what is that pregnancy that's been building? What, what is God doing in this nation? Because I'm not going to go and start a movement. I'm going to go and join God in what He's doing. So what is God doing? What has God been doing? I want to understand that. And I want to step into a period of history and I'm part of his story. I'm not the central figure of the story. We see that in Simeon who, who picks up Jesus and says, you know, um, now, now I've got it here. Sovereign Lord, as you promised, uh, you can now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. There's the story that... that even Jesus seems to be just a part of the story. There's, there's, there's this bigger story that this, this God in, in flesh, this baby, is a part of. And, and doesn't even understand it as a baby, that what he's part of. But there's a big story. There's a, there's a, a training, what, what is the training called, sorry, um, that you guys do? Where we look at the story of our lives. Oh, yeah, 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 refocusing. Refocusing. And we try and understand, what is the story of my life? I've got a story of my life, how God has been preparing me for movement since I was born. I also have a story of our nation and how God has been preparing the nation to be a catalyst for movements across Africa from long before I was born. And, and although I do certain things to lead a movement, the reality is that I stepped into a bigger story that was happening long before I came onto the scene. And each of us have to understand that. 
If we become the central part of that story and we don't connect with that pregnancy, then we're not going to see movement happen. There's John the Baptist. I mean, look at all these things that God does long before movement takes place. And so, so often when we talk about movements, we begin with Jesus goes and calls 12 disciples. It doesn't start there. It starts years and years and years, at least 4,000 years, depending on your theology of how many days it took to create the earth. But at least 4,000 years before that. <laughs> so what happens in this, in this period of, of, of spiritual pregnancy? Well, there's a whole lot of things that happen. There are signs and things that happen in a nation. Look at the whole Arab world right now. There's a pregnant period. There's something that God is preparing for a movement to come of His, of His Spirit. If I, if I look at my, my, my own life, there, there was this preparation, a deep preparation. I mean, I'm not like Nadim. I'm walking around seeing angels. Praise God. It freaked me out. <laughs> but I, 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 can, I can recount specific times and events. I can recount one time that I was spending uh, till, till, till the late hours, probably about 1, 2 in the morning in prayer. And at the end of prayer, I walked out and the only time in my entire life walked smack bang into the biggest person with a sword that I've ever seen. And he said, you're not finished. And God dealt with me for a few more hours and what was he doing? He was birthing movement. I can recount times that, that before any movement started, God was doing deep, deep work inside here. He was birthing something. And I can tell you that every single person involved in our movement has that same story. That leaders I connect with, I sit with and I say, tell me, why are you involved in what, were they, what we're doing? And they will tell me about this pregnancy, this birthing of what God was doing in their lives before we met. And so we've we got to understand there's, a, there's just a bigger, bigger story to all of this. I'm going to tell you that 15 years before the movement started, I was in a, in a telephone conversation with a lady and something was happening and, and, and I, was still, I was still a control freak. I'm still, some people tell me I'm still a bit of a control freak, but I was a serious control freak back then. And I started getting worried about what, you know, what was happening? You know, I was getting worried about theology and could I let this woman do what she's doing? And you know, I, was, I was really worried and I was alone in the house and, a, and, a, and an audible voice came from behind me and said, Don't you trust me? I dropped the phone. I spun around. I went up and down the stairs looking for who is in this house. I was terrified until I eventually registered that I kind of registered what was said. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing I reacted to was there was someone in the house. And God started to do these things in me. Now, that's not a typical occurrence for me. It's just not. It, it really isn't. That was 15 years ago at least, and I've never happened to me since. <laughs> but I can tell you that through a pregnant period, God was preparing me, and God was preparing a nation, and God was preparing a people. And when I finally stepped on the scene and said, let's launch movements, 
we stepped into a period of birth that had a long pregnancy period attached to it. And typically there's a, a lot of supernatural activity that happens in that preparation period. And I've seen that in, as I talk to movement leaders, as I talk to people around the world. I find exactly the same thing. There, there's, this, there's this supernatural activity that happens, just like in Scripture. There's this incredible supernatural activity. Unborn babies skipping around in the womb. Angels appearing. Voices happening. Stars appearing in the sky out of nowhere and leading people. There's all this, this supernatural activity that happens. And, and, and you know what excites me, and you, you're probably thinking it right now, is that some of what's happening in CRM right now is that exact same process. There's this preparation that can take weeks, days, months, or years, but there's a preparation period that God is preparing for movement to take place. And all of that kind of stuff happens. So I want you to turn to somebody and for five minutes have this little discussion with that person. What is the spiritual climate in my city, my nation, and in our team? Okay, let's come back together. So, what I, what I would like for you to do... What I, what I would like for you to do... Is take a take a piece of paper, take a piece of paper or a computer, <laughs> um, and I want you to write down every question that you that I'm going to give you to discuss. Okay, so write down this question very quickly. What is the spiritual climate in my city, nation, and team? Write that down. I'm going to give you seven questions. We're gonna we're gonna just have this small opening dialogue over every one of these seven questions. But what I want you to do is when we finish here for lunch and we go for the rest of the day. These are topics that I want you to interact with, with each other, all right? So, I'm doing that, Steve. I'm taking my session out of my session. <laughs> so, for the rest of the day, you can sit with somebody anywhere and say, hey, let's talk about one of these seven questions. All right. So, let's move forward. And again, uh, when you get the PowerPoint, there's going to be more detailed questions on each one of these because we, when we workshop this, we can spend a day on each one of these. Okay. So there's a build-up of tension. This is the, the second thing that we find in movements, is that there's a build-up of tension. Essentially, the gospel is good news, isn't it? Well, if it's good news, then we need to ask ourselves, what's the bad news? What is the bad news? And, and the bad news is different things to different people. To the poor, <laughs> bad news is a certain thing to the rich. Bad news is something else. What are people battling with and struggling with is what we want to understand. What is the tension between the reality of what is and the hope and the dream of what should be? When we identify the tension, the bigger the tension, the greater the climate for movement. One of the most powerful movements that happened was in Sierra Leone in the middle of a war zone. There was huge tension between the reality of what was and the hope of what could be. And so we want to find out what, what is the tension. What is the tension that people are experiencing at any moment in time? And there is tension everywhere and there is bad news everywhere because we're this side of heaven. We're not that side of heaven. 
So people say to me, you know, I live in a wealthy, rich city, and everybody has what they need, and everybody is fine. Nonsense. You don't understand the gospel, you don't understand the fall. Scratch a little bit deeper, and you will find that there is tension. People are struggling with different things, but they're struggling. When we go to the poor, people are struggling with food, income, money. When we go to the middle class, people are struggling with stress. They're struggling with relationships. Their relationships are breaking down. They're working 10, 14 hours a day. Their their marriages are breaking down. Their children are, are breaking down. Their children are on drugs. So it's the same struggle from a different perspective. The same struggle, but a different perspective. I'm generalizing. You need to identify this in your city. Where's the tension? The poor battle with money and income, food. The middle class battle with stress and relationship. The wealthy battle with meaning. They have no sense of meaning. They have no sense of purpose. They're looking. They have everything they want, but they don't know. They've got no purpose in life. And so you move to to very wealthy areas, very wealthy cities. What do you find? A high rate of suicide because there's no meaning to life. So what is the tension? And this is extremely relevant. So so how is all this relevant? Well, Steve talked about telling stories. Which story are you going to tell? The story that you design to begin telling has to be relevant to the person that you're telling the story to. And so as we begin to, to specifically design movements for different contexts, and we use all the tools that he's talked about, we have to understand these things. What is the tension? So I'm going to show you a movie clip, and, and we're going to go with uh, uh, Neo and Morpheus. Dave, is that, was that the second question? No, no, no. I'm coming to the second question. So here's Morpheus. How many of you understand the Matrix? Oh, there we go. Good stuff. We've got some fans here. So, <laughs> we live in the Matrix. So here's this, this famous scene of, of Neo arriving and he meets Morpheus. And what, what is interesting in this little encounter is that Neo is a seeker. And he comes to Morpheus and Morpheus doesn't just give him the answers. What Morpheus does is he begins to ask questions and he identifies the tension that is going on inside of, of Neo. And so let's look at that narrative and, and then we'll kind of unpack that a bit. Whoops. Tumbling down the rabbit hole? Hmm? You could say that. 
I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he is expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain. But you feel it. You felt it your entire life. That there's something wrong in the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there. Like a splinter in your mind. Driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. So, so what does he, what does he do in the, in that story? He doesn't just tell him what it is. It's a mistake that so many of us do when we try to share the gospel. You know, we just kind of download everything on there. But what does he do? He draws him out. And how does he draw him out? He draws him out just like Jesus at the woman at the with the woman at the well. Jesus asks these questions that are very pertinent, that talk into the tension that's inside that woman's heart. And as he does that, he draws her out. Here's what Neo does. He says, let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. And what you know, you can't explain. He, he says, there's this something going on inside of you. And, and, that, and that's, that's, he identifies that tension. Well, we can do exactly the same thing with a nation. What is the tension? That is taking place. Because movements happen inside of that place of tension. The stories that we go to, the discovery Bible studies that we do, the scriptures that we go to, have to be relevant to that. You felt it your entire life. There's nothing, there's, there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It's that feeling that has brought you to me. So, I, sorry, I got some stuff here. I'm going to just skip over because we don't have time. I want you to get into. Here's again, and I want you to just talk very briefly. Where is the tension? Where is the tension in my city, or in my nation? Say, so what are you talking about? Where is there a disillusionment with what is, and and a, and a hope of what could be, and people know that something's wrong. Where, where does that exist? Get into pairs quickly and talk about that. So, I travel a lot. A, a lot. I'm in a different country every month. And, and I speak to a lot of people on airplanes, and I'm, a, I'm an introvert. I don't like speaking to people on airplanes. They annoy me. And um, they're in my space all the time, and I just don't like it. Um, but what's the most common question people ask you besides who are you? What's your name? What's the next question? What do you do? 
So I've developed something that speaks into the tension that gives an answer to that. So what do you do? Well, I, I go around the world and I help people to become better leaders than they are. Well, that's interesting. Tell me more. Well, we've learned that uh, one of the biggest breakdowns of society is bad leadership. Leaders aren't what they should be. And so I move around helping leaders to become better leaders so that societies and families can heal and become whole. Well, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, that's much better than I go around planting churches. That shuts the conversation down very fast. <laughs> so people say, well, tell me more about that. I say, well, you know, now I know that I'm speaking into attention because many people have a boss or a leader or a church leader or somebody who's an authority figure who's, who's controlling and dominating. And so they, I'm speaking into attention that's, that's existing in them. And it's come around, what do you do? They said, tell me more. I said, well, yeah, you mind if I tell you a story that will illustrate this? No. Well, you see, Jesus one day had two of his followers come to him. And they said to him, Jesus, when you become king one day, can one of us sit on your left-hand side and one of, on the right-hand side on your throne? And Jesus says this to them. He says, you know, in my kingdom, leadership is totally different. In my kingdom, it's not like the leadership of the world where people control and dominate others. But leadership in my kingdom is about serving others and helping them to become more than they currently are. What do you think about that kind of leadership? And I'm in a conversation and I'm sharing something similar to what Steve has talked about. And I'm, I'm abbreviating here quickly. But I'm telling a story, but I'm not just telling a random story. I'm telling a story that speaks into the tension that has arisen out of a question. <laughs> okay. And so that's why it's important to understand these things. Again, there's a whole lot of stuff that you can work through. So let's go on to a compelling narrative. In, in every single movement, we find a very, very compelling narrative. This, here's the narrative of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Well... Right there, that, that says a lot. Because the rich are feeling left out and the poor are all excited. And you're speaking very revolutionary language here. Yeah. <laughs> he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Well, that's also pretty revolutionary language. What are you going to do? Go to all the prisons and unlock the doors and let them out, these hardened criminals? What are you talking about? <laughs> But he's speaking to people that are feeling oppressed. He's speaking to people that are feeling bound, that are feeling that taken advantage of. Recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus uses this compelling narrative. And you say, well, I'll just quote Jesus. I'll just say that to people. Ain't going to work because Jesus is talking into a particular context. So you've got to figure out what are the values of the kingdom and what is the narrative of the gospel and how can that speak into the tension of your area, your city, or the person that you're talking to. And all great movements have this narrative. They, they speak into the tension of the time. Here's one. Let's listen to this one. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be so. 
What makes this speech so powerful? Is it the speech itself? No. That same speech in a different context is powerless. What makes that speech powerful is that it is a narrative that speaks into the context, the tension of the time. And every single movement develops a narrative that speaks into the tension of the time. It identifies what is the tension in the people, the, the disillusionment with what is, the tension between that and the hope of what should be, and develops a narrative that speaks into that tension. And this goes through everything. It goes through how you speak, how you speak at leadership level. It goes down to which discovery Bible studies you do. And so, what is our narrative? I want you to write that question down because we're not going to pause on, on this one. We're going to have to move on quite rapidly. I'm doing seven days of training. <laughs> what is our narrative? And, and, and for the rest of the day, I want you to have some conversations with what is the tension and what is the narrative that we could speak into. You know, what, every tension, every tension in society is about the fall. And the gospel is speaking into the fall. So any tension that you identify has a gospel uh, message that addresses that tension. And we see that in Jesus as he interacts with people. Jesus doesn't have a standard response to every person he meets, does he? He speaks differently to every single person that he meets. Because he speaks into what's going on in that heart, the tension of that heart. A viral channel. One of the things that we have to identify is how does good news and bad news move through our society. And in, in a village context, it moves orally, maybe smoke signals, but it, it, it moves orally. Increasingly, in much of Africa, it doesn't move orally. It moves through cell phones, it moves through technology. You know, we, we got, I was speaking to someone earlier this, this morning, and we were talking about cell phone technology, and they said, well, you know, in Africa, it's not... I said, you, you don't understand. I've got shepherd herders in Kenya out in the, in the fields using cell phone apps to manage their herds of cows. Yeah. <laughs> you do not understand the penetration of technology in the world today. So how does information spread through our society? Where are people receiving information? I, I was with, with CRM in, in London and we were talking about, about this and I took a photograph in, in the underground, in the tube. And there's a row of people sitting, and what are they doing? Are they talking to each other? What are they doing? They're listening to iPods, they're reading newspapers. So if your strategy is word of mouth, guess what? <laughs> your message is not going to move. It's not going to move in that particular society. 
How will it move? How does, how does Jesus do this? He, he goes to the demoniac and, and he sets him free. And the demoniac says, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, no, let's employ a viral strategy here. He says, go back to your own, own people and tell them how much the Lord has done to you, for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Jesus is incredibly intentional about using viral strategy methods in his time. He sets people free and then sends them out. It's a word of mouth strategy. So you can say that this is the Twitter that Jesus used. There's Jesus' Twitter, yeah. <laughs> How does he do that with the woman of the well? Exactly the same. He has this conversation with her, and then she goes and she brings off the town to him. Jesus uses viral strategies the whole time. I'm going, to, I'm going to talk slightly more into the urban context. Here is TEDx. How many of you know TEDx? TEDx is this, this uh, organization that spreads ideas. Okay, not, not very Christian ideas most of the time, but they spread ideas. <laughs> so they, they're working in South America where technology is, is relatively low. And they say, how can we get our message out to society? And this is a short little movie of how they did that. And I, I want to go through that. And then we're going to stop and pause and talk about how does information move through our society. So how does, how, how, how does TEDx identify a viral channel for communication? They have a compelling message <coughs> that speaks into the tension of the time. And, they, and they, they, they sit and they think, how does information spread through a society where we're not currently getting penetration? And they identify taxi drivers, hairdressers, and they begin to spread the message through them. Well, we might not do the same thing. But, but here's the question that I want to ask you. How does information move in your city or society? How does information move in your city or society? And, and, and how does it move virally? Once you have a, a compelling narrative, a compelling message, how are you going to move that message through your society? And this is a strategic question. Okay. We, we decided at one point that we were going to go with partners and we're going to start training partners to do what we do. We're going to give away. We weren't going to build one organization. We're going to give it away. What do we do? We approached some tech guys. We put up a website that said, learn how to make disciples in a rapidly multiplying way. We built an attractive website. We optimized it on Google. And I had more responses than I could possibly deal with. And we had to build ways of filtering that so that we were training the right people so that there were more workers out there than, than we could produce at the rate of what, you, what we were doing. Well, that, that's one way. We're thinking through how does information move virally amongst the lost? How can we use you know, different ways of moving information so, so that we can take a compelling message and we can identify people of peace? And there's some of that happening in the Middle East that you, know, you guys are kind of involved in. So turn quickly, one-on-one, uh, -on -one, and talk through this question, and then write it down. How does information move in my city or nation? Just The other thing that movements have is a very, very clear point of entry. Um, they're very clear about how this, is how, you, how this is how you become part of what we're doing. And one, one mistake that movements make is that they're very, very vague about, about that point of entry. They're very, very vague about the cost of that point of entry. And, and we, need to be, we need to be clear on our, on our point of entry to movements. 
So we need a clear entry point with definite first steps. This is, this is how you can get involved. And we need this at every level. As you start to show success in reaching the lost, one of the things that happens is that Christians come in. And Christians want to join with what you're doing. And we realize that Christians mess up everything that, we, that we're doing. They mess up the work. So we had to have a clear point of entry for them. This is how you can get involved and channel them in a certain direction. Because we couldn't just chase them away. It wouldn't work. So, so we couldn't alienate them. Because in a, in a country like South Africa, you alienate the church, you're in big trouble. And so we, we had to find a point of entry for different people at different places. Whether it was church leaders, whether it was the last whether it was new Christians, whether it was nominal Christians, where, whoever it was, here's a point of entry that you can come into the movement. Jesus communicates uh, entry in different ways to different people. And, and part of the mistake I think that we've made is in theology is that we've tried to build a theology around some of these. And what Jesus really does is he says, this is how you can involved in this kingdom movement. And, and his approach is different to different people. Let's look at that. To a spiritual seeker, he says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Here's a, here's a guy who lives under law and legalism, and Jesus says to him, the point of entry is this birthing in, in, in your heart. But to fishermen, he goes to them and he says, come along with me and I'll teach you to fish for the souls of men. I'll make you fishers of men. Here's this point of entry, clear communication to them that is relevant to them. To a wealthy man consumed with possessions, he says, go and sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor and then follow me. So Jesus has different ways of communicating points of entry for different people. And we need to be clear about that. that This is how you can become involved and part of what we do. What we've learned is that communicating a clear point of entry is not about a membership form, but about an action. So... A Christian comes along to us and says, I want to get involved with what you do. I said, okay. You attend a training and you start a discovery Bible study. A, a pre-believer comes and says, hey, I want to get involved in what you do. We, you know, we have certain ways of saying this is what you can do. And it, and it even changes according to culture and according to place. So I work with different people at different levels, different contexts, different cultures. But there needs to be a point of entry. And one of the things that we don't do very well as Christians, is close the deal. We start to describe something, people get excited about it, because if your narrative is compelling and it's speaking into the tension, people are going to say, hey, I want to get on board. How do I do that? And you're going to be able to say to that person something that is contextually relevant to that person, this is how you can get involved. And it's not about signing a form and joining the club. It's about this is the action you take. And once you take that action, once you do that, once you lift up that banner and start protesting against abortion outside the abortion clinic, you are part of the anti-abortion movement. Once you take this action, once you start a discovery Bible study, you are part of this movement. That is how you join. It's an action. Take this action and you become part of the movement. We need to have that clear. And again, I'm not just talking about disciple-making movements. I'm talking generally about movements in general, what I've seen. So here's the next question, and we're going to keep moving. How clearly have we communicated points of entry? And, and, the, and this, is, this is very clear. This needs to be very, very clear. We found 
Christians love to attend seminars, and they'll go to seminar after seminar after seminar, and they think that by joining the seminars, they've become part of the movement. And we've had to say to them, no, as long as you're attending seminars, you're standing on the outside peering in. This is how you become part of the movement. These are the action steps you have to take. Let's move on. A common method is, is, is very, very clear in movement. There's a common methodology. Why is there? Why is a common method so important? Isn't that becoming rigid, legalistic? Um, yeah, it, it, isn't that becoming too formal? Should we allow everybody just to kind of do their own thing? Well, not really. Somebody who first gets involved in movement needs definite steps. And, and in order for something to be simple, but not simplistic, simple, you need to give definite, clear steps. A methodology is incredibly important. Now, we need a lot of flexibility around that. But we need to be clear on the methodology. Every single movement that I looked at had a very clear methodology. Jesus was very, very specific about the instructions that he gave. He says to the 12 and then the 72 the same thing. He gives the same instructions. He says, go two by two. Go to towns where I'm about to go. Pray for workers. Do not take anything. When you enter a house, this is what you say. He was very, very specific on the methodology. Now... As the movement grew, did they do every one of those steps, you know, like that in that row? I, I, I don't think so. But in his training, he was very, very clear and specific about his methodology. And we find that in movements around the world. Uh, one of the guys that's been quite instrumental strategically behind the, the Arab Spring, I don't know how many of you have studied the life of this guy called Gene Sharp. Uh, who wrote a book that is banned in most of the Arab world from dictatorship to, to democracy. And in that book, he lists 198 methods of nonviolent action. And if, you, and if you look at a lot of the uprisings that have happened against dictators, and you go and study the history, almost all of them have gone back to that manual and followed exactly the methodologies that he describes in that book. And, and, and very interesting, if you trace the patterns, many of those leaders have met with him personally. Go Google it. Very, very interesting. But there's specific methodology. Specific methodology. The Discovery Bible Study is a spe specific methodology. It gives people security around a framework to say, if I do A, B, C, I can't go wrong. I don't have to worry about whether I'm doing the right thing or the wrong thing. It's simple, it's a framework, and I can do this. When we're not clear about our methodology, we create a lot of confusion. One of the guys that I, that I trained, um, organizations that I trained, I went in and we trained them very clearly. We said, this is how you do this. The next week, they brought in another movement leader that had a different methodology. And he trained them in their methodology. The next week, he brought, they brought in another movement leader with a completely different methodology. And there was huge confusion. A year later, the, the guy came to me, and he's a very well-known guy. You all know him. He came to me and he said, we, we're not seeing movement. And I sat down and I said, so what are you doing? He said, well, we had all these people, and we, 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 we show people all these things and say, do whatever suits you. And I said to him, you, you, need, to be, you need to be clear. You need to be clear. Choose one. 
Right? You don't have to choose mine. You can choose that guy's methodology, you can choose that guy's methodology, but you need to settle on one. And you need to give a clear, clear voice that this is the way we do things. And let that spread throughout everybody. It took him another six months to choose one. He did settle on Discovery Bible Study. And he spread it throughout his movement. Today, they have Discovery Bible Studies in something like 50 different nations. And the movement has grown. So you need to have a clear methodology in every movement, whether it's social movement, secular movement, civil resistance movements, disciple-making movements, they settle on a very, very clear methodology. This is how we do things. So the question that you need to write there is, have we trained in a clear methodology? Have we been consistent? Quite frankly... I don't care what methodology you choose. Just choose one and be consistent about it. But you change your mind every few, few weeks, you create incredible confusion for people. And a lot of guys are doing that. If you want to get involved in disciple-making movements, then the Discovery Bible Study is the methodology. But I'm describing movements in general. If you want to see movement happen, you need to have a clear methodology. This is how we do things. What's the time? Ten to one. The last thing that um, we see in movements, and this, this, with all of this happening, this tends to be the thing that really catalyzes movements, is a great sacrifice. All of this stuff takes place in the story of Jesus, and don't have time to go into it, but it takes place in the story of Jesus. But one thing that had to happen was a great sacrifice. And that sacrifice becomes the catalyst for the movement. It becomes the, the thing that they declare, Christ and Him crucified. And so for, by one sacrifice, He has made perfect those who forever are being made holy. That sacrifice becomes the definition, the defining symbol of the Christian movement. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Every movement requires a sacrifice. Every single movement. Every renewal movement in the church pointed to the cross, but also pointed to a sacrifice of their time. Every movement is catalyzed by somebody who gives their life, heart, and soul, sometimes to death for that particular movement. Every single movement, every social movement, every civil resistance movement, every disciple-making movement, church-planting movement. Paul says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. That's, the, Paul, that's hard to believe. That, that's hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> I, I think, what, what is Paul saying? I, I think Paul is saying that... that, that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all for sin, but every movement requires a person to become a sacrifice. It requires a living sacrifice. And so Mohammed Bouazizi in Tunisia goes out and he's frustrated by, by and, and, and there's these things happening 
that, that frustrate him and he's insulted by a woman and he can't earn a living selling fruit and vegetables and he steps out into the streets in Tunisia and sets himself on fire and becomes the catalyst for a movement that gets called the Arab Spring. All of those things are in place, but until that guy sets himself on fire, nothing happens. And the moment that happens, we see these mass protests happening all over uh, Tunisia and the Arab world. It becomes the catalyst. And every single movement requires someone to set themselves on fire, maybe not physically, <laughs> but requires that sacrifice. Sometimes it's an act. Martin Luther goes and nails 95 theses on this door. And, and, and I mean, he takes this huge risk where, where people that have done even half of what he did just before him, through generations, I mean, hundreds of people have been murdered and killed and burnt at the stake. And he still takes that risk and, and he does that. And that action becomes that catalyst for that movement. And, and every single moment that I've looked at, it requires... That sacrifice. In our story, we, we went to Midrand, where we were, and I had a heart for movement. I wanted to see a movement start. And we spent three years, and then another three years. And at the end of six years of hard labor and work, we ended up with this church that wasn't a movement. It was like every other church. And there came a point in time. I mean, it took us six years. We, we had taken such risk to stop this. We had gone with nothing. We'd stepped into fresh air. I had no income, no salary. And we built six hard years. We'd built up a place where this church was providing for us. It was our income. It was our salary. It was... It was you know, when we started there, we would walk our children to school, three, four kilometers, walk home, buy a loaf of bread because we didn't have petrol to go and buy food. That happened month after month after month. This close to eviction. We, I mean, we, we, we really sweated for this church that was now born. And now we had these 70 people on a good Sunday, 90 people in a room. And, and I'm standing there and, I'm, and I come to the realization that what I'm doing will never change a nation. What do you do? What do you do? And I, I, I drove, I was arguing with God because I knew what I had to do and I was arguing. And I, I woke up the one morning and I turned to Michelle and I said these words. I said, I hate church. And I'm the pastor. Something's wrong. And we went on leave took leave and we drove down to an area not far from us about eight hours drive we stopped the car and I climbed out the car and I walked just started walking and ten minutes into my walk I was saying God what is wrong what is wrong what is this and and clearly as anything God spoke to my heart and I knew what he was saying he was saying this thing that you'd given your heart and soul and family and everything for that you'd built over six years I want you to sacrifice And go back to having no income. Go back to having no stability because that's what it's going to require to create a movement. And this baby that we'd given, I mean, you, you go home and explain that to your wife. 
we went back to Johannesburg and I stood up in front of 70 people and I said, we're closing this church in obedience to God. You explain that to Christians. And, and that sacrifice was one of the hardest things we've ever done. But that story, over and over and over, has inspired people to get involved in the movement that we're involved in. It's mobilized people. It shocked people. You what? You closed the church in obedience to God? What are you talking about? What kind of an idiot does that? Every single movement creates a sacrifice, and sometimes, sometimes it's someone getting killed. Sometimes it's a martyr. It takes a radical action. You cannot do this in the comfort of your lounge watching TV and say, okay, well, movements will happen if I you know, push this button on my remote, things will happen. No, it's going to require blood, sweat, and tears. It's going to require radical action. It's going to require huge steps of sacrifice. And somewhere in that, the sacrifice is going to catalyze a movement. And the last question, and then we ask ourselves is, am I willing to sacrifice? I mean, am I willing to give it up, to give it all up? See, we hold on to so much stuff. Norris and I were talking yesterday, and, and one of the things we were talking about, I said to him, Norris, I have an organization, but you know what? My organization means absolutely nothing to me. Because the movement's not the organization. I, I've given up once, I'll give it up again. I, I've got nothing to protect. Because what we have in a movement, you can't take away from me. You can kill the organization, you can close down everything. You know what I have? I have multitudes of relationships, connections, people, a movement. There's nothing that you can take away from me that I haven't already given up. It takes that level of sacrifice if you want to see movement. And if you're protecting and guarding, trying to build a name, trying to build a, f a fancy organization, you're not going to see movement. It takes a sacrifice. And so in the, in the last few minutes, I'd like you to just get in twos and threes. And say, what am I willing to sacrifice? And have I counted that cost? And then just pray for each other.